Good morning. Today we encounter the story of the woman of Shunem, a woman who isn't even privileged enough to be named in the text. She is simply the Shunammite woman, or at least this is how the prophet Elisha refers to her. However, as we shall see, there's nothing simple about her. I chose to focus on her today on this Mother's Day because she is so decidedly complex. She is a woman who chases after holiness, a woman who has journeyed through childlessness, a woman acquainted with grief. Her child dies. This dream unexpectedly given is suddenly and unexpectedly gone. She sits and holds her boy and watches her dream die. And just when her world feels like it's ending, something happens in her. Something else is birthed in her. And she finds strength and determination and perhaps a little bit of rage to chase out a different ending to her story. But let's start at the beginning and get to know her as her story unfolds. The Shinnamite woman is not named, but she is identified as a great woman. The word can mean great as in wealthy or great as in prominent. Most likely both are true. Either way, she's accorded honor, for this is the only time in the Bible when this word is applied to a woman. She is a woman of means, and we soon see that she uses her wealth to extend hospitality and care for others. She invites the stranger, Elisha, into her home and feeds him, and a relationship is begun such that he stops in every time he passes through Shunem. The Shunammite woman is a woman of discernment, sensing that Elisha is a man of God. As God's representative, he embodies divine presence, and she wants more of that. She wants the divine presence to stay close and dwell with her. She says to her husband, look, I am sure this man is a holy man of God. Her spirit is sensitive. She is sure of herself, and she takes action. She makes She says to her husband, let's make a room for him, a cozy space with all the comforts of home, so he can stay with us when he's passing through town. The text doesn't say much about the Shunammite woman's husband. He too is unnamed, but unlike his wife, he's essentially a non-actor in this story. The woman wants a room, and so it is done. So when Elisha makes it back to Shunam, he settles into his new digs. Stretching out on his bed and relaxing in this comfortable space of his own, the prophet gets to thinking. Perhaps he can find a way to repay the woman for her hospitality. This is a story as much about Elisha as it is about the Shunammite woman, but today our focus is on her. So I'll leave it to you to consider what might be leading him to make her an offer. Is it gratitude for her generosity? Is there some insecurity or power dynamic here, the discomfort of being in someone's debt? Uh, Or is it a moment of divine leading, a gentle nudge of the spirit to meet a need, this woman, for this woman who's been so kind to him? I'll also leave it to you to ponder the choice of Elisha to maintain such distance with the Shunammite woman, choosing each time to address her through his servant Gehazi. is, Is it propriety? Discomfort? Or something else. Through Gehazi, Elisha makes an offer to do something for the woman. He's a man with power and connections. He could make a call to the king because, you know, he hangs out at the palace sometimes. Maybe he could put in a good word to the commander of the army. It's a pretty big deal, a man offering political favor to a childless woman in ancient Near Eastern culture was not to be taken lightly. But the Shunammite woman demurs. 
I live among my own people. In other words, no thanks, I'm good. I can't help but wonder what is behind this response. Is she too proud to ask for help? Receiving can be quite a challenge for folks who are used to being the givers, as she certainly is. Perhaps there's a vulnerability in naming her need that feels too tender or too raw. Is she holding out for a better offer? Is she looking for divine favor rather than political favor? She is a woman who uses her influence to seek spiritual gains, after all. Or is she simply and truly content? As the message translates her response, I'm secure and satisfied in my family. After the woman, uh, the woman, can we give her a name? Let's call her Shuna. After Shuna leaves, Elisha is dissatisfied. She wants to do, he wants to do something for her. What can we do? He asks his servant. Gehazi's suggestion comes in the form of an observation. Well, she has no son and her husband is old. I'm not sure whether to hug or shake Gehazi. Does this comment come from a place of tenderness and insight into a possible deeper object of Shuna's desiring? Or does he look at this woman apparently content and satisfied with her life and find a way to call it lacking? Whatever the reasoning, Elisha quickly gets on board and tells Shuna his plan. A year from now, you will embrace a son. We may pause here to note a few things. First of all, this miraculous birth story differs from the others of Sarah, Hannah, Manoah, and Elizabeth in a number of ways. For one thing, there's no indication here that Shuna longed for a child. Neither is she specifically described as barren. It's her husband that's old is all we've told about the matter. Finally, Jewish commentators make a textual and thematic connection between this passage and the Isaac narrative in Isaac 18. In Genesis 18, in that passage, the angels declare to Abraham and Sarah that the Lord provided the promised child. Here, the will of God is noticeably absent. Elisha seems to make this offer out of his own will. Elisha oversteps. When the child, are bo- when the child is born, we're told it happens, not as the Lord had declared, but as Elisha had declared One commentator suggests that perhaps Elisha gives the child to meet his own need rather than Shuna's. But let's get back to Elisha's news. You shall embrace a son. Whereas Sarah laughs in wonder at the promise of a child, Shuna does not. She resists. No, my lord. O man of God, do not deceive your servant. I wonder what's happening for Shuna in this moment. To my own ears and out of my own experience, I hear fear and vulnerability, and yes, longing. Although we don't know the particulars of her unique story, Shuna has certainly had to reckon with her childlessness. As a woman in her culture, survival depended on having sons. From her earliest years as a little girl, being a mother would have been held up to her as her primary role and source of value in society. And yet, she has no children. We may guess at the twists and turns of her story, her unexpected childlessness, and her journey through longing, but that path, whatever it was, is behind her now. She has put that dream to rest. She has found purpose and contentment on a different road. She's found her place amongst her people. She's respected, generous, and hospitable. And she has cultivated a rich spiritual longing that has filled her in such a way that she can say to the man of God, I have enough. 
So when Elisha makes his pronouncement, she resists. Don't. Don't open up this door that I finally managed to close. Don't open this old wound. Don't toy with my longings. Don't make promises you can't keep. Perhaps she too notices that God's will is missing from Elijah's actions and fears that this too may not end well. We don't get to hear how that conversation played out or what those months looked like as the reality that she was indeed going to have a child became very clear with every stretch mark on her belly and every ache in her bones. The child is born and the months and years go by and Shuna relaxes into the reality that this dream has come true. This child really happened. Her heart is opened wide and old wounds, still present but less painful now, have made room for newfound joy to fill in all those lonely spaces of longing and deferred hope. Then a headache, an embrace, and he is gone. The young boy was with his father in the fields and felt a sudden pain come on in his head. He is promptly sent to his mother who holds him in in her lap until the light fades from his eyes and he is dead. Dead. The narrative moves along here at breakneck pace, hardly leaving room for the reader, you or I, to breathe as the narrator moves from death to action in the space of a period. But this is where I want to pause. This is where I want to linger today and honor this woman and her pain. What must have gone through Shuna's mind in those few precious hours as she watched the life of her son drain away? No amount of love and embrace could change this terrible outcome. She is powerless to prevent his death. Powerless. She opened up her heart for this. She became tender again for this. Pointless. No, not pointless. He is loved. He was always loved and always will be, and that will never change. Not pointless, but cruel. This is the dream she didn't ask for, the dream she'd long ago released in surrender, the dream that was planted back in her life, in her womb, without her ever seeking it. And now, the dream given has been taken away. This is the part of the story that leaves me breathless, for I, too, have held my dreams and watched them die. I have sat with the grief of powerlessness and hopelessness and wondering if God actually loves me or is simply toying with me. I've cried out to God, what is going on? You were the one who gave me this dream. Why are you killing it? I wonder what dreams you have watched die. Some of us have lost a child or the hope of a child. Others have lost relationships, marriages, jobs, or dreams of a future that will no longer pan out the way we thought it would. In the time of COVID-19, dreams are dying all over the place. Lives and businesses are lost. Celebrations, graduations, and holidays are canceled. Retirement funds are depleted, and in moments, it seems like even basic human decency has been dealt a death blow. There is so much loss in our world, big and small, personal and corporate, and I honor it all with you here today. I honor the pain and the grief and the anger and the loss. Thankfully, 
This is not the end of the story for Shuna or her son, and neither is it the end for each of us. Alongside the death and loss and searing pain, something is happening inside of Shuna. A new seed is being planted in the soil of dead things. Something fierce is welling up inside her. Somehow she finds strength to get up and lay her lifeless son on Elisha's bed, which for her is a tangible representation of God's presence. She lays her child on the altar, so to speak. And then, full of quiet fury, she sets off to confront Elisha. She is resolute, and no one, not her husband, not her servant, not even Elisha's servant Gehazi, are going to get in her way. It will be all right, is all she will say as she makes her way to the mountain. Her faith and her determination astound me. When Elisha sees her coming, he once again keeps his distance and sends Gehazi out to meet her. Through his servant, he asks Shuna if everything's okay. I can't help but wonder if over time Elisha has gained insight as he's reflected on his actions all those years ago. Was he really just making his own plan and calling it God's? What might this visit to the mountain mean? We learn, too, that God has hidden the reason for Shuna's visit from him. Paradoxically, for this prophet, he must seek her for information and insight. Are you okay? Your husband? Your son? Shuna refuses to discuss her issue with an intermediary. She is going right to the source with the full force of her faith and her fury. Did I ask you for a son? Didn't I say, don't toy with me? Didn't I? Elisha doesn't even wait to hear what else has happened. I think he must know by now. His face goes white as awareness dawns on him. What will become of his presumption? What will become of this Shunammite woman who showed him such kindness and is now in such bitter distress? He promptly sends Gehazi to the boy, instructing him to lay his staff on the child's face. I wonder if he really thinks this will work. Shuna doesn't seem to think so because she is having none of it. As the Lord leaves, I am not leaving without you. So once again, paradoxically, the prophet finds himself following the woman's lead as they make their way to Shunem. Elisha's solution via Gehazi falls, fails. The staff applied in Elisha's name is ineffective. Elisha can no longer maintain a comfortable distance as he approaches the dead child on his own bed. Confronted by his powerlessness, Elisha resorts to prayer and, humbled, lays himself on the bed altar with the boy. Perhaps there is a dying for him, too, in this story. It is by the power of God not Elisha, that the child is revived. He becomes warm and sneezes and is returned alive to the embrace of his mother. Take your son, Elisha says. The last verse of our text says, she came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she took her son and left. I wish I could wrap this story up with a tidy bow and tell you that your own dreams, which have died, will rise again in the fullness of life, but I cannot. Alas, the Bible is never quite so predictable as all that. There is no magic formula, but there is hope here. The gospel shines through. 
I mentioned earlier a few of the differences between Shuna's story and the stories of other women who've had miraculous births. These other mothers receded into the background once their sons were born and their stories take over. Isaac fathers a nation. Samson defeats the Philistines. Samuel becomes a prophet and John the Baptist ushers in the kingdom of God. Here, however, the story stays centered on Shuna. The story is not so much focused on what happens to her, but within her. This is the story of a woman's becoming. This is the story of a woman who sought after God with a hunger that surpassed that of the men in her life. It is a story of a woman who found contentment in circumstances not of her choosing. It is the story of a woman who surrendered to new circumstances when they arose and who chose to press in to the risk and vulnerability of love. This is the story of a woman's becoming through pain. It is the story of a woman who sat with death and found that even that to be a fertile place for new life. I'm not talking about the life of her son right now. That came later. I'm talking about a birthing in her spirit, something costly and beautiful and holy taking root in the soil of dead things. This is an incredibly tender truth that terrible suffering is often intertwined with profound beauty. The way to everlasting life is through the valley of the shadow of death. I don't know why it so often happens this way, but I have sat with enough suffering to know that it does. Hope can grow in the soil of dead things. Beauty can rise out of ashes. This, my friends, is the miracle. For Shuna, it looked like getting up and fighting for life. Here again, we see a contrast with the story of Isaac. Whereas Abraham understood God is one who commands death and lifted the knife against his son, Shuna fights with everything she has for the life of her child, even after he has died. Whatever she held back before she lost him is now loosed. In the face of her life, in the face of her loss, she has nothing left to lose. She is freed to speak up and speak loud and take action. In the sacred process of her own becoming, she discovers herself and finds strength, courage, and determination, and faith she never knew she had. She is transformed into an active participant in her story. And I submit to you that all of these things happened because of this one truth— Just as she held her son dying, she is held by God in her dying. She is held in God's tender embrace, in her anger and her pain and her loss. Yes, the son is brought to life, but the other miracle of this story is that she is brought to life again. She carries on with a deeper, richer experience of aliveness that transforms not just her experience, but the experiences and lives of those around her. That's what hope growing in the soil of dead things looked like for Shuna. As for you and I, well, who can say how the Lord will make it happen? Perhaps you have seen green glimpses of growth already and found your way to hope and gratitude. Maybe you've grown up a whole garden of healing out of that fertile soil. You've become a wounded healer called to journey with others through their crippling pain. Or... Perhaps you have waited so long that you fear growth and healing will never happen. You are feeling stuck in the powerlessness and cruelty of it. Maybe, dear ones, 
you are so deeply wounded that your imagination can provide no scenario in which you will ever find hope again. These are all sacred stages in the process of becoming. And this is the good news of the gospel. God meets us in each of these places. God holds us tenderly like a mother whose love knows no limits and is willing to risk everything for our life and our flourishing. We are held in the embrace of the one who can and will give birth in us to new things. We, every one of us, are being formed in the womb of God. The womb is a place of darkness and tight spaces, but it is also the place of transformation. My prayer for each one of us today is that we may find ourselves held by the embrace of God in this terrible, beautiful, and holy process of becoming. May we hear God's heartbeat and be comforted by the maternal presence of God. And may we be transformed, healed, and redeemed by it for our own flourishing and for those around us. Amen.